Thank you for choosing the podcast of East Haven Baptist Church in Brookhaven, Mississippi. For more information on the ministries of East Haven and to access videos and sermon notes from our services, visit www.easthaven.net. In John chapter 5, starting in verse 1, John writes, After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up and while I am going another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you, we come before you, we come before your word. We ask that you might speak to us from your word. We ask that you might challenge us. We ask that you might transform us. We ask that you might give us exactly what we need to hear today. No matter where we are, no matter what situation we may be facing, no matter what our, our life age or stage may be, Father, I pray that, that you would just speak. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Mercy flows downhill. Mercy always goes from greater to lesser. Mercy travels from those who have to those who have not. Mercy goes from those who are possessing the ability to extend mercy to those who are in need of mercy. Mercy flows downhill. And it's a wonderful thing when you ask for mercy and you receive it. It's a great thing when you're begging for mercy and someone gives it. That's incredibly humbling. But it's another thing altogether when mercy comes looking for you. When you weren't necessarily asking for it or you weren't necessarily looking for it and God in his riches of his mercy extends that mercy to you. Now, what we're, we've been looking at over the last few Sundays are the signs of Jesus in the book of John. And we said that a sign was another word that is used to refer to a distinguishing mark. Something that sets one person apart from all others. That's the idea of a sign. It's the word that can be used for signature, autograph. And so these physical acts that we are finding, these seven spiritual signs throughout the book of John, these physical miracles, if you will, those are spiritual and those are physical and spiritual acts together. It's a physical act that is reflecting a spiritual truth, a deeper spiritual truth. And in each case, Jesus is saying, signed. God. 
Because only God does these things. And so today we're looking at the miracle, the sign, at the pool of Bethesda. Now, I've stood there at the edge of the pool of Bethesda in Israel. It's outside of the old city of Jerusalem. John records that it's outside of this area called the Sheep Gate, a smaller gate there at the north, northeast corner of old Jerusalem. And you can go there today and you can look down from some walkways and you can see the remains of the pool of Bethesda. And you're looking down because over the years, more structures have been built atop those structures. And even before that was used in the day of Jesus, we find that archaeologically, those were used as pools before that. And then after the Romans came in and took over and destroyed Jerusalem, the Romans set up a a series of baths there with those pools. And then after the Romans, more people came. And you find that uh, after that time, there were churches, there was a church that was built upon that land to commemorate the miracles that Jesus did. And then the Muslims came in and destroyed the church. But there are remains of those pools there still today, remains of those colonnades, those, those porches that had columns supporting the roof. Those remain there even today. In fact, the name Bethesda means house of mercy. It was believed, according to archaeologists, there were two pools. There was one that was uphill and one that was downhill. And they were Jewish ritual baths. And so they would release the water from the upper pool and it would flow down and churn up the water in the lower pool. Now this is about the time that someone normally would ask about, why is it that in my Bible, I've got a second half of verse 3 and I've got a verse, verse number 4, that you didn't mention? There's a verse that says, the second half of verse 3 says that these people who were there inside these colonnades, inside these roofed porches surrounding these pools, were waiting for the stirring up of the water. And verse 4 in some versions say that there was an angel that would visit and stir up the water. And when the angel would stir up the water, the first person who got into the water would be healed. Now, in some of your translations that you're looking at, you don't have that. You may have that as a footnote. Some translations put it into the actual text. The oldest and most reliable manuscripts we have do not have that in the original text. Now, that's not a reason to get all worried. If you've been coming on Sunday night, we've been looking at how to study the Bible, and we've talked about textual variants. This does not mean the whole Bible is faulty, by no means. Most people say that this was probably something that someone put in as a little marginal note, And that marginal note over the years became worked into the actual text. Now, do we know that for certain? No, but we just know the oldest ones don't have it. So was there an angel or wasn't there an an angel? Well, we don't know. But one thing we can say for certain, the story is not about an angel. It's about Jesus. So whether or not an angel did come and stir the waters or whether the water was stirred whenever water was released from that upper pool to the lower pool is really of no consequence because the point is Jesus, not an angel or not when water was released from one pool to another. But the point being this, mercy came for this man. Let's look back at verse 1. 
after this, there was a feast of the Jews. This is the only time that John does not record the specific feast that he's referring to. Elsewhere, throughout the book of John, he talks about the feast of Passover or this feast or that feast. Here he just says the feast. There was a feast of the Jews. We don't know which one it was. But Jesus went to Jerusalem to be at the feast. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, house of mercy, which has five roof colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. Verse 5, one man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. 38 years. For those of you of a certain age, let me give you a little point of reference. That would mean that if Jesus did the healing, let's say around today, that means if you went back when the man became an invalid, whether he's been an invalid all his life or there was an accident that rendered him or a disease that rendered him invalid, we don't know. But if you went all the way back 38 years from, say, right around today, you would have Ronald Reagan signing the Social Security Act. Laverne and Shirley just finished their last episode. Some of you are saying, Laverne and Shirley, who is that, right? That's, you know, those are the things that were happening at that time, 38 years ago. Now, I know some of you are like, that can't be 38 years ago. That was like 20 years ago. No. Do you realize that we are farther away today from the 1980s than the 1980s were from the 1950s? Let that settle in, right? But this man has been there for 38 years. And Jesus comes to this man and, and says... And notice verse 6, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew he had already been there a long time. Jesus said to him, do you want to be healed? What kind of question is that? Do you want to be healed? I'm at a pool where there's supposed healing properties. Kind of like Hot Springs, Arkansas used to be, where people would come from all over the land to go to Hot Springs, Arkansas to, to get in one of those pools and get in one of those baths and, and bathe in the water that they believe would create a, a, a healing environment. That's kind of what's going on here. There were other pools around this area because there was water that was coming up. And so there were other pools of that purported healing properties. And this man is, I'm here at a pool where we believe that people get healed, why else do you think I'm here? Do you want to be healed? Notice what the man says. Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. Why would Jesus ask such a question to such a man? Jesus is getting this man to consider the cost. There's always a cost to being healed. There's always a cost when mercy comes. Because when mercy flows downhill and you receive that mercy, it eliminates some excuses. This man's lying there. Somebody has to come and bring him there, probably. Someone has to give him food. Someone has to supply his needs. Someone has to take care of him. Someone has to take him home, maybe at the end of the day. Seems, granted, now he is an invalid. He can't enjoy a lot of freedoms, but at the same time, Maybe he has some degree of, well, you know, this ain't half bad. And Jesus is saying, do you want to be healed? Because if you're healed, maybe you don't get what you've been used to. 
Maybe you have more responsibilities. Maybe you have to get out and, and get a job, or maybe you have to take care of some things around the home. Maybe you're going to have to do all these things. It's like the students I used to teach whenever I was a teacher. And they would say things like this. Well, I'll tell you one thing. Whenever I get out on my own, I'm never going to do housework. <laughs> I'm not going to worry about paying all those bills. Oh, yeah, you will. You know, you will adult at some point in time. All right. So Jesus is asking him to count the cost. And Jesus requires us to count the cost. When mercy flows downhill to us, we have to count the cost. And this man responds to Jesus, and notice what he says. He doesn't say, well, of course, yes. He says, I have no one to put me in the pool. And and then whenever I'm going, somebody else butts ahead of me and and gets ahead of me. This man has to consider the cost of being made well. Maybe Jesus asks each of us the same thing. Do you want to be healed? Do you really want to be healed? Because there is a cost that is associated with following me. He makes this clear in Luke chapter 14. Start with verse 27. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Jesus is laying out the cost of discipleship. It costs us everything. Now, we might add at this point that this man, we find out, does not know who Jesus is at this point. It just seems like a stranger has come to him to talk to him and ask him a very strange question. Do you want to be healed? Jesus is saying you have to count the costs. We must count the cost of following Christ. Because just like this man at the pool of Bethesda who's been there 38 years, Our fear can sometimes become more familiar than our faith. And our fear of a given situation, our fear of what might happen, our fear of the unknown can become a much more familiar companion to us than the faith God has called us to step out into based upon his word. Jesus requires us to count the cost. And when mercy flows downhill to us, we have to understand that comes at a price. Do you want to be healed? Because Jesus knows it's worth it. The question is, do we know that's worth it? We have to count the cost when mercy flows downhill to us. But not only that, look at verse 8. Jesus said to him, get up, take, take up your bed and walk. Now, he's not talking about a literal bed. The man didn't have like a a bed with, you know, the head of a bed and the foot of the bed and, you know, the box frame and all. He didn't have all that. He's talking about a pallet, basically, kind of like a sleeping bag he would have rolled up. But Jesus says, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. 
And we find that John mentions, now that day was the Sabbath. We'll talk more about that in a second. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to take up your bed. (laughs) This guy's just been healed. He hadn't been able to walk for 38 years. Jesus says, take up your bed and walk. The man is healed. He rolls up his sleeping bag, throws it on his shoulder, sticks it under his arm and starts walking. The Jews say, whoa, 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 whoa. It's the Sabbath. You shouldn't be carrying your bed. Never mind. The man's been unable to walk for 38 years. But he answered them. The man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. Uh, You see what the implication is here? I I guess I'm a simple guy, but if a man, if I haven't been able to walk for 38 years and a man tells me to take up my bed and walk and I can get up and walk, even if it's on the Sabbath, I think that's probably okay. They ask him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Who is this person? Now the man had been, the man who had been healed did not know who it was for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. So in this area with all this multitude, Jesus heals this one guy and then slips away, disappears into the crowd. Doesn't that seem odd? One guy out of all the people there. John records there's a multitude in in these colonnaded porches. And Jesus goes out there to the pool of Bethesda to find this one guy and heal this one guy. Why? Because that was the will of God. And God's will determines the when and the where. And might I add, the who. God's will determines the when and the where. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. But he doesn't linger there. Imagine the scene, what might have happened. Jesus heals this one man. This man gets up and starts walking. Everybody's saying, this guy didn't even get in the pool. What is going on with him? He's up and he's walking. He's been here forever. And now he's up and he's walking. Who did this? Well, this guy did it. This guy will heal me. I want to be made well. No, I want to be made well. Me first. I was here first. Everybody form a line. We need order here because he's going to heal all these people. That's not what happens. He withdraws. He slips away. Because apparently it was God's will for God to send Jesus to meet this one guy in this one place at that time to heal him. God determines the when and the where. When mercy comes, it's because God has determined that's the when and the where. Sometimes we talk about revival and we try to, we try to work up revival even within the church. You can't do that. Revival is a sovereign act of God. It occurs when he wants it to, where he wants it to, and how he wants it to. Now, we can, we can get our sail, as the old saying goes, we can get our sails set. We can pray up and, and, and allow God to cleanse us. By all means, we should. But we set our sails. We don't provide the wind. God does that. And so in this case, here is this man who is visited by mercy itself. He's in, the, he's in Bethesda. He's at the house of mercy. And mercy embodied shows up and finds him he's there hoping he can get some mercy he can't even get mercy in the house of mercy nobody's taking him down there to the pool and people are getting in front of him even though he's been there 38 years 
He's in the house of mercy and can't find mercy. And so mercy in the flesh finds him. Mercy flows downhill from greater to the lesser, from those who have to those who need. And Jesus is the one who has all mercy. And he's coming to do the will of God. He makes this clear in John chapter 6, verse 38. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus comes to accomplish the will of his Father. And God is the one who determines the when and the where. That's sometimes hard for us to get our mind around. We say, well, why did God work this way here, but not not in the same way over here? Why did God answer this prayer one way, and this other person was praying this particular prayer, and God answered a different way? Because God is answering according to his will. And that's hard for us sometimes. And sometimes it's hard for us to get our head around that. It's hard for us to look at this and say, well, why didn't Jesus go heal everybody at the pool of Bethesda? Why didn't he put that pool out of business? Listen, if he had put that pool out of business that one day, that place would have been full the next day. Jesus is doing the will of his Father. Just go through some time and read through the Gospels and see how many times Jesus did not heal everybody. Jesus didn't heal everybody. There were instances where even more people were coming back the next day after Jesus healed some people. And Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, come on, boys, we're going to the next town. And they were like, but, 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 look, look, look at all the people who have come to be healed. And Jesus says, I've, I've come to preach. I've come to convey this message. It's not, it's not, my, this is not just a physical healing ministry. That's not what I'm operating here. I'm offering spiritual healing, eternal healing. The the physical healing is just to point people toward that. The spiritual healing that I'm offering. God's will determines the when and the where. Philippians 2.13. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do you know the reason that we are able to have the power to do the will of God and to work the will of God? Because God gives us that. Do you know the reason we want to work the will of God? Because God works in our will. And so we understand that it's, it's God's will. He determines the when. He determines the where. We can't force his hand to work. There's a gentleman I taught with, I taught school with a number of years ago. That was back when I was still single. He told me, he said, you're single. I said, yes. He said, we need to find you a wife. I said, I don't think you need to be the person to help me with that, right? I mean, I had a committee and it didn't work, but um, not here, but there was a self-appointed committee at the last church and it didn't go well. But anyway, you've heard the stories. But this guy looked at me and he said, here's what you need to do. You need to go before God and you need to give him a date. You need to give him a deadline. And you need to quit asking and you need to start demanding. That's how I got my wife. I said, brother, God showed you mercy. Because A, I know your wife. Okay. And she is a wonderful, wonderful woman. And you, you were, you are, you are way outside of your coverage. Right. So this has got to be a God thing. All right. But I told him, but secondly, you don't go make demands of the Almighty. You don't go and tell God, here's the when, here's the where, and here's the how even, and you go ahead and get on this. God does not work that way. 
There is no arm twisting. Nobody twists the everlasting arms, okay? You just don't do that. You don't take God's mighty right hand and say, I'm just going to twist it around behind his back. That does not work. It never works. God is the one who determines it. And we receive that will of his gladly and willingly and humbly. Is there some area maybe you're fighting God's will? God's been dealing with you about something? And you've just been fighting it saying, no, no, God, I don't want to do that. This isn't the time. This isn't the place. I'm not going to do that. And God is saying, no, now's it. Because I determine the when and the where. Not you. I determine the when and the where. You just need to be obedient. Notice what happens. Verse 14. Afterward. Afterward. I love this phrase. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple. First place the guy went. 38 years being an invalid. Who knows how long he'd been laying in those colonnaded porches in that wet atmosphere around those pools, watching people go down into the pool, laying there waiting for somebody to help him. Jesus heals him, doesn't even know it's Jesus. And the first thing he does is he goes to the temple. He goes to worship. He hadn't been able to do that. First place he goes, he goes to worship. Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. What? Sin sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you because now you're well. Now some have said Jesus is drawing a connection between this man's personal sin and then his healing. Uh, maybe, maybe, does that mean that every time we have a disease or a disorder, it's because of somebody's personal sin? Absolutely not. The Bible's clear about that. Does it indicate that sometimes that may be the case? Sure. But is that all the time? No, not at all. Sometimes God can use those types of things to discipline his children and bring them back to a right walk with him. But sometimes it's something that's beyond us. We just don't understand. Jesus is telling this guy, listen, you've been healed. That's what I believe. You've been healed, so now use this new physical reality you've been given to live for righteousness. Don't use your freedom now to go and participate in sin. Because now this guy being healed, he could get into all sorts of stuff that he could not have gotten into before. And Jesus is saying, see, now you're well. Go and, go and sin no more so that something worse doesn't befall you. You just thought laying beside the pool at Bethesda all this time, you just thought that was bad. There are places that running and jumping and, and immersing ourselves into sin, there are places that can take you that are far, far worse than laying next to a pool as an invalid. Jesus is saying, Listen, I saved you for something. And this is what Jesus tells us. Jesus saves us from God's wrath and for God's purpose. We are saved from and we are saved for. We are saved from God's wrath on sin. Jesus came, lived a perfect life, died our death on the cross to satisfy the wrath of God. We are saved, therefore, we say, whoa, I'm saved from sin. Yeah, 
ultimately we're saved from the penalty of sin, which is the wrath of God. We are saved from wrath, and then we are saved for God's purposes. We're saved from and saved for. So many times we focus on the saved from. I heard a guy one time, a good friend of mine, loved the guy. He gave his testimony one time in front of a group of people. For about a half an hour, all he majored on was how horrible a person he was and everything he had gotten into. And he went on and he went on and he went on and he went on and he went on. This was in front of a large group. And then he rounded out his testimony with this. And then Jesus saved me and everything changed. Amen. And I looked around the room and there were some people out there in the audience I mean, they were, they were lost, lost. I mean, they were, they were a lost ball in tall grass. I mean, they were out there and they're looking around each other like, well, that sounds like my Saturday night and I enjoy my Saturday nights. And he says, Jesus changed everything. I don't know if I want Jesus to change everything because I'm having a lot of fun. My friend, though God had done a lot of work in him after he had become saved, he didn't talk about what he was saved for. He just majored on what he was saved from. But we are saved for some things. God brought us to the place, those of us who are followers of Christ, for a reason. Let's just take a moment. Just listen to this. I'm not going to make a whole lot of commentary on this. I just want you to listen to Ephesians chapter 2. Listen to the first 10 verses of, of Ephesians 2. Just listen real carefully. Just let God just, uh, just ask God to help you listen with your heart. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's what God does out of his great mercy. When mercy flows downhill and you receive it, Jesus saves us from God's wrath and for God's purposes. And that's why we can find in Galatians chapter 5, verse 24, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. We are saved from and we are saved for. As, as followers of Christ, those of you who are followers of Christ, I know some of you may be here, some of you watching or listening, maybe you aren't. But can you say that you understand if you're a follower of Christ, you have been saved from something for something, for from someone's wrath, for someone's purposes, 
for, from the wrath of God and for the purposes of God in Christ. Jesus tells us, man, go and sin no more. Don't use this wellness as an opportunity to get sick sinfully, sick spiritually. Don't use it that way. Use it to pursue righteousness. So the man, after he meets Jesus, realizes, oh, it was Jesus that said this. Oh. So notice verse 15. The man went away and told the Jews it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing on his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these he will show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Jesus is saying, I always act in agreement with my Father. Jesus always acts in agreement with his Father. Always. Jesus never does anything outside of the will of God. We looked at the will of God earlier. Jesus always acts in agreement with his Father. And here are these Jews. They're coming to Jesus. They're saying, you're doing this on the Sabbath. The Jews' Sabbath. They're Saturday. The holy day. Now, Jesus is saying, no. Uh Uh-uh. See, Jesus isn't breaking the Sabbath. He's breaking all their traditions around the Sabbath. Jesus understands the heart of the Sabbath. Jesus understands, yes, it was a day of worship. It was a day of rest. Yeah, he understands that because, I mean, he was there at the beginning. He participated in creation. But Jesus tells those Jews, listen, my my father, my father is working until now, and now I'm working. See what Jesus is saying? Hey, guys, my father works on the Sabbath. My, My father is still working. My father still does that. They were trying to hold him to some traditional views of their Sabbath. And Jesus is saying, no, because they're missing the point. They were missing the point that there were things you could do on the Sabbath that were required. And there were things you could do on the Sabbath that were works of righteousness. Works that were requirements, works of righteousness. You could work those works. You know, growing up, I mean, I think a lot of times within the church, we try to equate our Sunday with the Sabbath. That's not the same thing. It's not. You find in Colossians, Paul says, let no one judge you according to a Sabbath. Now, is it good to have a day of rest? Absolutely. And after the resurrection of Jesus, we began worshiping, Christians began worshiping on the first day of the week, Sunday. But it's not a one-to-one. I had a guy one time tell me, he says, he goes, you know, the Sabbath, it, it, swatched, it switched over. And so then after Jesus was resurrected, the Sabbath is our Sunday. Sunday is our Sabbath. And I was like, really? He goes, we should follow everything in the Bible that says about the Sabbath. And I was like, really? I said, do you ever go buy anything on the Sabbath? He said, yeah. I said, then they should stone you. Because the penalty for breaking the Sabbath is the death penalty. That's, I mean, that's it, right? Because Jesus, here's the, here's the point. Jesus is saying, hey guys, I'm not breaking the Sabbath right now. I'm fulfilling the Sabbath right now. The true rest that the Bible speaks of, the spiritual rest, doesn't come with a day. It comes in a person, and that's me. 
writer of Hebrews talks about Jesus being our Sabbath rest. With all those works of righteousness that we had to work to do and all these things, we can rest in the work that Jesus has already accomplished. And just as in the Old Testament, God said, here's all my rules and regulations, and you've, you've got to do these things, and you've got to avoid these things on this day. All of that, according to Colossians, is just a shadow pointing ahead. Even the death penalty. Listen, if you don't find your spiritual rest in Jesus now, you will remain spiritually dead forever. We find our rest in Jesus. And Jesus is saying, hey, my father will heal people even on the Sabbath, guys. That's a work of righteousness. You, you find, if you want to have some fun, read through the Gospels at how many times Jesus intentionally heals on the Sabbath just to get the Jewish leaders goats. He does this all the time. Look, let me give you one here. Luke chapter 14. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. Can you imagine that? Jesus just sitting there eating with him and they're all like watching. What's he going to do that's wrong? What is he going to do that we can catch him in? There's going to be something. He always upsets people. Watch him. Everybody watch him. Pay attention to how he eats. Pay attention to what he does. He's going to break, he's going to break something. I don't mean like silverware. He's going to break some rule, some regulation, some, some tradition. And it says, and behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy, an accumulation of fluid in different parts of the body. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? He's already setting them up. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Hmm. Hmm. Anyone? Anyone? But they remained silent. And he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Jesus says, let me show you. My father is at work. And I am at work and I am at work and I am that rest and I am always acting in agreement with my father and my father understands there are works that are required emergencies and also there are things that are righteous and we can work the works of righteousness. That's what we find in Matthew chapter nine, verse 13, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Jesus is like, it's not about all the rules and regulations. It's not about all the strictures and structures. It's not about all these things, guys. It's about the heart of it. It's about desiring mercy. I desire it to come from the heart. And mercy always flows downhill. Let me just ask this in closing. And this is, a, this is for you, between you and God. Answer between you and God. Do you recognize the great mercy that has been extended to you? Have you ever had that moment where mercy came looking for you? And mercy showed up in a way you didn't expect. You've been laying there for a long time. Waiting for some other form of mercy to come. Waiting for healing to come in some other fashion. Waiting for all sorts of people or individuals to finally notice you and get you where you needed to be or or someone to come and help you and 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 take care of you and do all those things and jesus shows up and says do you want to be made well do you really want mercy oh you may be in the house of mercy but do you want do you want mercy himself to enter into the equation and radically transform the way that you view reality Radically transform your future. Radically transform your now. 
understanding that he's only going to do it in accordance with the will of the Father, and what he does is going to be in full agreement with his Father. But recognizing he's calling us to step out of the fear and step into faith, no matter how familiar that fear may be, and step into a life where we receive the true mercy that comes, the true lasting mercy that comes from Jesus himself. Has mercy ever come and visited you? If he has, that should be a humbling thing. That should be a humbling thing. And worship should be our immediate response. Thanksgiving should be our immediate response. Great humility before him should be our immediate response. And if you're listening or you're watching or you're here today and you say, I've never received that mercy from Christ, it's available. Because just as we said earlier, just as we said, if, if you don't receive that rest that comes from Jesus by his finished work on the cross, we will face that death penalty for our sin. An eternity away from God in hell. And Jesus says, I'm extending mercy to you. If you'll just take up your bed and walk, I'll offer spiritual healing. I'll offer healing by my blood, healing by my sacrifice, healing by the cross. But you must receive that mercy. You must receive that mercy. Do you want to be made well? Well, the good part is, if you're down right now, mercy flows downhill. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you. We're thankful for your great mercy. We're thankful that your mercy flows downhill to us. We're thankful that Jesus, when we were still sinners, came to us. You sent him. Not because of who we were. We were separated from you. Lost. Dead. Not because of any potential you saw in us. Our potential was just become worse versions of ourselves. But because of your great mercy, you came to us. Father, thank you for your mercy. May we never forget how great a mercy has been extended to us. And may we never forget that your word tells us that your mercies are new every morning. We will not have to go into tomorrow with old mercies. We won't even have to go into tomorrow with day-old mercies. You give your mercies fresh every day. Father, we're thankful for that. We're thankful for that. So, Father, we pray now that you would go before us in this time of decision, whatever decision needs to be made. If there's a prayer that needs to be prayed, if, if someone wants to talk about joining the church or being baptized, boldly, boldly professing the change that you have brought into their life, maybe someone says, I need that mercy. I need, I need that mercy in the person of Jesus, in the sacrifice of Jesus through the cross and the blood of Jesus. I need that mercy applied to my life. Father, I pray today would be the day that they would say yes to Jesus. They would ask for forgiveness. And they would recognize that in doing so, they are saved from your wrath and saved for your purpose. So in this time, as we respond, as we worship you in song as we worship you in prayer and in praise as we worship you in decisions may you grant your boldness and your empowerment and we ask this in jesus name amen